Hi, campers. Welcome to Museum Camp. I'm Megan. I'm Madison. Hello and welcome to our little tiny baby mini-sode. Oh, it's our little bundle of joy. It's our little bundle of joy. It's extremely immature in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. I think you're first. Is it me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you all about some Niagara Falls barrel riders. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a mental floss article called 11 outrageous moments in Niagara Falls barrel riding. Uh, sure. I mean, arguably all of the moments in Niagara Falls barrel riding are outrageous, but okay. <laughs> even, yeah. Even the like calm ones, the lesser known ones, yeah. you know, yeah, those are still crazy. Okay. For decades, thrill seekers have fought the odds and common sense by going over <laughs> the world's most famous waterfalls in rickety containers, a trip that has claimed several lives and as such is illegal. Here are a handful of pioneers who tried it nonetheless. So number one, um, the strange custom of going down Niagara Falls in a barrel began with an elderly music and dance teacher named sure. Annie Edson Taylor. Okay. Hoping the stunt would make her rich and famous, she had a customized unit made which included safety straps and a breathing tube. On October 24th, 1901, her 63rd birthday, her preparation paid off when she survived her trip only to wait 20 gut-wrenching minutes for a rescue boat to nab the contraption. Unfortunately, she achieved neither fame nor fortune and died penniless in 1921. Oh, yikes. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't end well for most of these people. I'm just... Well, sure. I just think also, like, weird... Of all the ways to pursue fame and fortune, that just would be pretty low on my list. Well, and I feel like in like at the turn of the century back then, I mean, we talked about several of these people who like, like Lenny Wingo, we talked about, he mm. thought he was going to get fame and fortune from walking yeah. around the world backwards. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like around that time, people were trying to do these really weird feats yeah. and thought it was just going to make them money. Yeah. But I, they should have held out for TikTok. They really should have. Okay. Number two. Irony, thy name is Bobby Leach. This British circus performer repeated Taylor's death-defying antics in 1911. Though battered and bruised, he lived to tell the tale, only to die of medical complications after slipping on an orange peel 15 years later. (laughs) Oh, no. Wow. I mean, what uh, kind of karma uh, is that? To survive Niagara Falls, but to be brought down by an orange peel. (laughs) Well, and like a circus performer dying by slipping on an orange peel is a little on the nose. It's a little too on the nose. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Uh, Number three, Charles G. Stevens was the first casualty of Niagara's dangerous sport. Uh, Believing it would make his trip safer, the middle-aged barber tied his right arm to the specialized vessel which is all that was found of him after it broke apart. Uh, yeah, not smart. Steven's severed appendage received a proper burial at a nearby cemetery. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's terrible that's... laugh at, but like burying an arm. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> that is dark. <laughs> it is very dark. <laughs> okay, number four. Between 1910 and 1942, if you wanted to follow in Taylor's footsteps, William Red Hill Sr. was the man to see. Though he never tried besting the falls himself, it was Hill who rescued Leach and tried to warn Stevens about his treacherous barrel. An accomplished stuntman in his own right, Hill most notably ventured through the deadly Niagara Whirlpool in 1930, securing his place in the Daredevil Hall of Fame. All right. Number five, barrels just don't cut it for some adrenaline junkies. Enter Jean Lussier of New Hampshire. Hearing of Stevens' plight, Lussier decided to forego traditional methods and invested his life savings in a gigantic rubber ball. Guys. Guys. (laughs) The summer of 1928 saw thousands of spectators gather to witness its maiden voyage. Lussier's journey was a triumphant success, and he decided to stay in the region, selling off pieces of the historic sphere to eager tourists. Oh my God. So I guess his ended, you know, somewhat well. He was able to, I don't know how much fortune he made. Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little scratch. (laughs) Uh, Number six, George L. Staphicus may have sealed his doom by telling the press that if he didn't survive, this is my favorite one. I just remember <laughs> that if he didn't survive his upcoming ride over the falls, his pet turtle, Sonny Boy, who went with him, would live on to tell their story. <laughs> no, that's not how turtles work. <laughs> He's like, turtles, you know, they have a relationship with water. So obviously, Sonny Boy will survive. Oh, no. Lo and behold, the fortunate reptile made it out alive, which was more than could be said for his owner. Sunny boy, however, declined to comment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Such a good bird. I'm obsessed. Um, number seven has a video attached to it. So it says the above news bulletin was filmed in July, 1984 after 37 year old Canadian Carl Susek cascaded down Niagara's horseshoe falls. Unfortunately, his efforts to replicate the feat at the Houston Astrodome that winter turned deadly when he crashed onto the rim of the water tank. He was supposed to land in after a 180 foot drop fracturing his skull and crushing his abdomen. I mean, why are you tempting fate twice? Yeah. If that now you're just getting your ego involved. Well, if you do it once, like, yeah, you have the bragging rights. Why do you need to do it again? Yeah. Yeah. It's like winning the lottery. Once you win, stop sinking money into tickets. Exactly. It's exactly that. It's exactly like the lottery. (laughs) Um, number eight, who was the first man to go over Niagara Falls twice? Unsatisfied with his first barrel ride in 1985, here we go again. John Super Dave Monday returned to give it another go in 1993. First of all, Super Dave, but your name is John. John Super Dave Monday. Uh-huh. M-U-N-D-A-Y. I mean, okay. So it's, it's either little, way. 
it's a little uh garfield universe yes there's a lot going on yeah (laughs) 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 oh man um okay number nine educators take note there are easier ways to denounce substance abuse than climbing into a 3,000 pound steel barrel and dropping down a waterfall. This, Ill- <laughs> <laughs> this ill conceived strategy belonged to Peter DiBernardi and Jeffrey Petkovich, who became the first duo to take the Niagara plunge in 1989. Inscribed on the side of their bright yellow cylinder was the helpful slogan Don't put yourself on the edge, drugs will kill you. I mean, Hey, so will going down a waterfall in a barrel. I just am astounded. It's incredible. Uh, I cannot. We're going to prove to you that you shouldn't do this life-threatening thing by doing this other life-threatening thing. Yeah. Like you should have just written, at least it's not drugs on the side. (laughs) At least it's not drugs. (sighs) Oh my gosh. Uh, Number 10 has a video attached as well. Um, which I didn't realize that this was filmed, but it's David Copperfield going over. Um, So quote, over the years, a number of people have tried to survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, magician David Copperfield said in a 1990 TV special. Uh, Many died trying, but guess what? I don't plan on joining them. His elaborate (laughs) performance involving chains, flames, and a helicopter can be seen above. I just feel like sometimes magicians could just tone it down a little bit. You guys, I mean, you don't have to be so over the top. Yeah. If you pull a bunny out of a hat, I'm going to be. Yeah, my jaw will drop. That's enough for me. Right. That's plenty. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then finally, number 11, like DiBernardi and Petkovich, Robert Overcracker. (laughs) This is the whitest name of all time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'll never recover. I know. Robert Overcracker wanted to raise awareness (laughs) about a pressing issue homelessness. Knowing a jet ski would attract more attention than a boring old barrel. Overcracker rode over the peak before plummeting to his death when the specially designed parachute he'd brought failed to open. I mean, uh, a jet ski. I mean, come on, dude. Come on, Overcracker. <laughs> oh, but that is uh, just some of the few famous Niagara Falls barrel riders. Incredible. Barrel, <laughs> more like burial. <laughs> So it was maybe one of my darkest puns. <laughs> oh, beautiful though. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. That was really good. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, so I also didn't pick a Wikipedia article today. I have one from okay. smithsonianmag.com. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is a story by um, archaeology correspondent Megan Gannon. Uh, published October 27th, 2020. And this is the story of ostracism in ancient Greece. Greece. Oh, okay. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, I had to really think about like the word ostracism because you, when you, like, as soon as you were saying it, I was like, 
ostriches. ostriches. <laughs> I just, my mind always goes straight to ostriches. Yeah, I love them. Love those. Guys. Love them. Love them so much. <laughs> this is almost as good as an ostrich. Okay, good. In the 1960s, archaeologists made a remarkable discovery in the history of elections. They found a heap of about 8,500 ballots, likely from a vote tallied in 471 BC in a landfill in Athens. Mm -hmm. These intentionally broken pieces of pottery were the ancient equivalent of scraps of paper, but rather than being used to usher someone into office, they were used to give fellow citizens the boot. (laughs) (laughs) love it um called ostraca each shard was scrawled with the name of a candidate the voter wanted to see exiled from the city for the next 10 years bring it back bring it back i am ready for this Uh, From about 487 to 416 BC, ostracism was a process by which Athenian citizens could banish someone without a trial. (laughs) Quote, it was a negative popularity contest. I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Says historian James Sickinger of Florida State University. Quote, we're told it originated as a way to get rid of potential tyrants. From early times, it seems to be used against individuals who were maybe not guilty of a criminal offense, so a case couldn't be brought to court, but who had in some other way violated or transgressed against community norms and posed a threat to civic order. (laughs) (laughs) Athenians would first take a vote on whether there should be an ostracophoria or an election to ostracize. Mm. If yes, then they would set a date for the event. Okay, <laughs> so savage. A I candidate had to have at least 6,000 votes cast against him to be ostracized. And yeah. historical records suggest that this occurred at least a dozen times. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Yes. <laughs> I already have a list in my head of yeah, people right. I'm voting for. Mm-hmm. Ostracisms occurred during the heyday of Athenian democracy, which allowed direct participation in governance for the city-state's citizenry, a population that excluded women, enslaved workers, and foreign-born residents. Though the number of citizens could sometimes be as high as 60,000, a much smaller group of men was actively involved in Athenian politics. Ostracism could be a guard against any one of them gaining too much power and influence. Nearly all of Athens' most prominent politicians were targets even pericles the great statesman statesman and orator was Mm -hmm. once a candidate though never successfully ostracized his ambitious building program that left us the parthenon and the other monuments of the acropolis as we know it today was not universally beloved written ballots were fairly unusual in athenian democracy sickinger says candidates for many official positions were chosen by lot which doesn't feel uh, like the best way to do that. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. do I know? During assemblies, we've developed citizens- it over the years. Yeah, we've perfect- we learned from there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's obviously absolutely perfect. Now. Yeah, no flaws, no room for no. flaws. No. <laughs> During assemblies where citizens voted on laws, the yays and nays were typically counted by a show of hands. Ostraca, then, are the rare artifacts of actual democratic procedures. They can reveal hidden bits of history that were omitted by ancient chroniclers and offer insight into voter behavior and preferences that would otherwise be lost. 
the first ostracon which <laughs> i don't know if that's actually how you pronounce it but i love the idea of like an ostrich and an os a convention for a convention for ostracizing yeah. or ostriches uh-huh. yeah oh my god an ostrich <laughs> convention sign me up dude it would smell the emus so are bad pissed. yeah the emus, the emus are, are like, like we are will start another kidding? war <laughs> again We've done it before <laughs> And we won, bitch. Yeah. When are we going to get the, you know, <laughs> aplomb that we deserve? <laughs> uh, the first ostracon was identified in 1853. And over the next century, only about 1,600 were counted from various deposits in Athens, including some from the Athenian Agora or Marketplace, which, which Sickinger has been studying. So it was a remarkable haul when a German team of archaeologists started finding thousands of ostraca in the uh, Karamekos neighborhood of Athens in 1966. The mm-hmm. Karamekos was just northwest of the ancient city walls and famous for its pottery workshops where artists created attic vases with their distinctive black and red figures. Hmm. These ballots, which had been made from fragments of a variety of types of household vases and even roof tiles and ceramic lamps, had been dumped along with heaps of other trash to fill in an abandoned channel of the Eridanos River. Excavations continued there until 1969, and some of the ostraca were studied over the next few decades, but it wasn't until 2018 that Stefan Bren of Germany's University of Geisen published a full catalog describing all 9,000 ostraca that were excavated in the Karamekos between 1910 and 2005. Mm. It's a long excavation. Yeah. Um, this is a very long article. So I'm going to skip over a little bit. Sure. Um, the votes often concentrated around just two or three people, but other individuals, some of whom scholars never knew existed, also received votes in fairly large numbers, according to Ostraca deposits studied by archaeologists, which is so funny to think that like literally the only, it's such a bummer, the only way that you're remembered in history yeah thousands of years later people didn't want you around anymore people didn't want you around <laughs> that sucks um besides the names of forgotten athenian men the ostraca themselves also reveal athenians attitudes toward their fellow citizenry some feature nasty epithets liegros glauconos slanderer calixinos the traitor Xanthippus, Erephron's son, is declared by this ostracon to be the out-and-out winner among accursed sinners. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like <laughs> so uh, dramatic. Uh, others took jabs at the personal lives of the candidates. One ballot cast in 471 BC was against Megacles Hippocrates Adulter, which I assume means adulterer. Um, yeah. Adultery was at that time a prosecutable offense, but also may have been used as a political attack. Mm. Um, let's see. According to Bren, some of these comments may reflect personal grievances against candidates, but the time leading up to the Ostracophoria political campaigns against candidates were pr- probably rampant. As he once wrote, most of the remarks on Ostraca belong to low-level slogans easily propagated, reminiscent of tabloid coverage of candidates today. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, researchers have uncovered a few examples of Athenians casting their vote not against a fellow citizen, but limos or famine. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. like, 
I mean, great thought everyone, but what are you going to do with that? Right. (laughs) Like, Hey, yes, we vote to get rid of famine. Yeah. We're just, you're you're exiled now. And also if I were in charge, um, I would bring about world peace. Yes. While we're at it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, okay. The extraneous remarks on Ostraca alongside other irregularities like misspellings and crossed out letters indicate that no strict format for the ballots had been established. It seems that voters didn't even have to write on their own ballots. Scholars have found several examples of Ostraca that fit together as if broken from an old pot on site with matching handwriting as well, suggesting some Athenians helped their friends and neighbors write down their vote. That would be the Mm. coolest puzzle of all time. Oh, yeah. Archaeologists have also found a trove of seemingly unused but mass-produced ballots against the general Themistocles in a well on the north slope of the Athenian Acropolis. Quote, the assumption is that they did not have restrictions on someone else producing your vote for you, Sikinger says, but he Mm -hmm. adds that it seems likely that voters filed into the marketplace through specific entrances according to their tribes, so some oversight or supervision guarded against fraud and ballot casting. Uh, the ancient writer Plutarch tells us that the final ostracism took, took place in 416 BC when political rivals Alcibiades and uh, Nicias <clears throat> nailed those, uh, realizing they were both facing ostracism, teamed up to turn the votes of their fellow citizens against another candidate, Hyperbolus, who was banished. I wonder if that's where we get hyperbole. <laughs> yeah, what a name. Uh, the outcome apparently disgusted enough Athenians that the practice ended. Uh, quote, I try to convey to my students that when we talk about the Athenians as inventing democracy, we tend to put them on a pedestal, Sickinger says, but they were victims of many of the same weaknesses of human nature that we suffer from today. Ostracism wasn't necessarily a pristine, idealistic mechanism, but it could be a- abused for partisan ends as well. Hmm. And that, that is ostracism. Wow. Um, what I want to say is, uh, of all of the creatures in this world that I would vote to ostracize, an ostrich would never be one of them. Never. And I want ostriches to know that. Yeah. This is our new, um, this is our newest campaign, I think, just to get ostriches on our side. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan. Love a big bird. Yeah. We love a big bird. Oh, you're those eggs. <laughs> oh man, the eggs are unreal. Yeah. Eat for days. Um, <laughs> campers, thank you for joining us for this. I would say extra silly. Immature extra history. silly. We had a lot of laughs. Yep. A lot of laughs, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope that you are having just a super beautiful day. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Goodbye, campers. Goodbye, my little babies.